Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Please note, this pod covers some heavy topics. Some of it can be triggers. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. He's a licensed and certified bank code trainer, a master trainer of NLP, DHE, and a master hypnotherapist and hypnotist. He founded Idea Seminars and is the creator of Mind Design, the Attitude Activator, and Directed Questions. Rex really is a thought leader. He's dedicated four decades to helping countless thousands of people globally transform their minds and lives. His book, Life on Your Terms, Live the Life You Want, teaches you to stop losing out and start winning. Those are only some of Rex's endeavors. Rex is joining me on this podcast because he too is a suicide survivor. This is his story of transformation. And that's why I am so excited today to bring you Rex Sykes. Thank you so much for joining me. It's wonderful to have you here. And I know you have a very compelling story. Um, You have a book. Uh, You have a lot of things that I think our audience will be very interested in. It can sometimes be a little bit daunting for people to listen to the podcast because we do deal with difficult subject, suicide and the aftermath. Uh, The perspective is from those who have survived and those that have lost someone. I just want to be sure that anyone who may be triggered understands that it's going to be a very frank discussion. That being said, thank you so much, Rex. I'm going to let you go ahead and start wherever you want. Beginning, middle, end, you choose. Wow. Well, okay. I would say this. Today, I live the life of my dreams. I do what I want, when I want, where I want, with whom I want. It's great. But it wasn't always like that. And um, many years ago, I had a situation where I tried to take my own life. And I'm really happy today that I didn't do it. So I write about it in my book uh, uh, briefly. And uh, it's, it's um, you know, there's so many people who suffer and who have difficulty in the world and, and uh, face uh, problems that they may think are insurmountable. And and I felt the same way, and yet I oftentimes feel that my difficulties or my problems or challenges in life um, pale by comparison. And yet every single difficult moment that I've had in my past, what I've come to realize was it's a blessing. It wasn't there to break me down or to destroy me or to somehow rob me of anything. It was there to help me become who I am today. It's helped, it was there to shape me 
and to help me discover my authentic self. And I think that is true of all people. And I think, frankly, I think we're all just one kind of giant source of energy and consciousness um, playing it out as different personalities on the planet. But uh, that said, um, I never take for granted or lightly um, anyone's difficulties or situations, not even including my own, except to say that today, there are still challenges and there's still difficulties and there's still hardships. And again, I think that they're all part of the blessing because I, I think if you consider everything a blessing, then everything is a blessing. And when you understand that, you know, just like there's day and night and hot and cold and the tides go out and the tides come in and there's tall and short and fat and thin and, and all the different variations, there are good days and not so good days, or there's good moments and not so good moments. And, and all of them are part of the process of, of being able to grow and expand. The plant, the tiny bush that is never challenged by nature, doesn't have any high winds or difficult rains, doesn't grow very strong and, and, and can wither quite easily. But that which is challenged can grow up and be strong and firm and, and stand the course. So I am so thrilled to be here today, not only here in the show, but I'm here to, glad to be here today. Um, you know, and I look forward to each and every day. And and um, I always I always try and remind people, you know, make all of your moments memorable and magical and miraculous because that's all we really have. So and moments pass. And I'm I'll stop here and and um, allow Elaine to speak. But it's it's truly I, I feel I have a truly blessed life that I would never have known had I not prevailed and not not succeeded at what I had attempted to do. That That's such a good point. I'm glad we stopped there because I just had to say, my God, you are singing my song. <laughs> I always talk about the fact that we as humans are comparative and without comparison. Well, what is there? You know, it's really important that we understand that and that those challenges uh, we we accept them wholeheartedly going forward looking for the silver lining. Uh, anyone who really knows me knows that, you know, I say it all the time, put me somewhere where there's a big pile of horse shit and I'm going to start digging because there's a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> That's a great, great, I love it because it's true. It's true, you know, and if nothing else, follow the horse apples and you'll find the pony. <laughs> yeah, oh, I like, oh, horse apples. I really like that. I like that. I'd never heard that before. Oh, it's a, I guess it's a cowboy term or a, or a rancher term, so. Ah, well, yes, coming from Scotland as I did, not much of a cowboy or a rancher. <laughs> well, me either, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what I wanted to say also to that is taking the upbeat approach that you do now and understanding that it's really what we make it. It's always how we choose to react to whatever is happening. And yes, you're absolutely right. Not everything is wine and roses. Some of us don't drink wine. Right. Yeah. And everything's not, not great. And yet... There is a reason to prevail. Oh, so, 
Yeah, yeah. So I think we're talking certainly not in the last little while, uh, but we're, we're going to get deep right now and go to the reason that ties to the show, and that is that you once were at a place where you chose to try to take your life. Right. Well, and, and again, I, I do write about it, but I'm happy to talk about it. Um, and, and when I write about it, I don't go into, you know, a lot of detail. So I might be able to cover more of it here yeah. um, if it's helpful. Um, I grew up in a, you know, in a, in a fairly affluent uh, middle class home. I, I had parents who loved me the way they loved me. I, I But I never felt love. This was the in, in, interesting thing. Um, I don't think that they... I mean, they didn't abuse me, at least intentionally or in any way, shape or form that I'm aware of. But I just always felt something was lacking and something was missing. We weren't a close family. We weren't uh, very demonstrative in terms of affection. Um, and neither were the relatives. I mean, you know, of, of mm-hmm. uh, other my mother's or father's side. So I grew up always kind of feeling that I was not right. I was not doing as I should do or being who I should be that I, my father used to say, you have a, you have a dark cloud following you around. You're just an unlucky person. And, and uh, would oftentimes rush in to kind of save me from myself, you know, or if I had a project in school, he would, he would jump in and finish it for me. So I, I I never really learned how to finish things. And I never really learned how to, to um, make, make mistakes and correct them for myself, I guess is, is what I would say. So during my teenage years, especially when I hit a middle, it wasn't middle school at the time, it was junior high. But when I hit junior high, you know, I was I was reading all sorts of self-help books. I started actually when I was seven. My parents put me in uh, acting and dancing and acrobatic lessons when I was three. And uh, not because they wanted me to do any of those things. So those, those are all the things I ended up doing, um, much to their dismay. But um, <laughs> they... Uh, but to be well-rounded, you know, in, in order to have a background of experience and to enjoy different things and maybe to help me, you know, I was a gregarious kid, no doubt. I mean, what I presented to the world was different than how I felt on the inside, I guess you would say. So um, by the time I was six, I was I had been raised Catholic. I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a mystic. I knew that there was some kind of infinite God or something out there, and I wanted to connect with it because I didn't feel whole or complete. And maybe if I were devoted to God, then then I would be a better person. So I asked my mom to read me things like the Bhagavad Gita and Napoleon Hill and and all sorts of different books, you know, Khalil Gibran and things as I was growing up. And so, um, you know, she would read those things. And by the time I was 11, I was doing self-hypnosis and studying more of this stuff and and actually doing hypnosis. And, and, um, but when I entered junior high and, I think particularly eighth grade. I just, I want, I, did, I wanted to kill myself many, many times. I mean, I just felt like I didn't connect. I didn't fit. I didn't belong. Um, I had friends. There was no doubt that I had friends. I wasn't completely isolated or anything. Um, and I had girlfriends and things, but I just felt so, I guess, lonely, even in a crowd. And lonely when I was by myself. I mean, it, it, it didn't change much. So, um, but I didn't kill myself, but I I did engage in lots of risky behavior as I was growing up, both into my teens and my 20s. I did anything I could to probably get killed. Um, And I drank lots, you know, binge drinking as a teenager, and I would get caught and I would get punished. And 
you know, and I think it was all a cry for help, um, you know, and, and trying to discover and find myself. And so I, meanwhile, I'm still reading and I'm still trying to pursue this stuff, but I feel very, very empty and, and nothing seems to be working. And um, by the time I was 18 or 19, I, you know, I, I became a professional actor in Hollywood and um, was pursuing a career. And uh, in my 20s, I, uh, I've, there have been times when I was absolutely broke. I had no money, you know, for, I had two nickels that I kept in my pocket for three or four or five months because I didn't want to be completely broke, but I had nothing else but two, two nickels. And we figured out how to buy cigarettes and how, you know, where we could find money or work for somebody for like $2, you know I mean? It was back in the seventies. Yep. It wasn't like you made $20 or, you know, or anything you'd make $2. Um, I think, I think, you know, I got a job at a gas station for three hours. I made $6. And with that, we'd buy ketchup. <laughs> we'd buy like mashed potato mix and cigarettes and that's what we would live on and um i for i had a i didn't i, I went i hitchhiked all over la i got beat up i got molested i got you know, guns put to my head i mean all sorts of different experiences and um about the time i was in my mid-20s i was uh very much in love with a, a young lady and um I, was, I went skydiving i had done a motion picture i'd done a movie where i i had to learn horseback riding and they gave me all these lessons and uh, the actually the movie uh, was starring Charlene Tilton if you know the actress yes. from Dallas and things but so I played death on horseback so I had to be this master ah. and I had ridden horses but I was not adequate as a rider so they gave me all these incredibly expensive lessons and I had to go riding with other people and other women of course made this girl that I was with jealous and and um, one of them asked me if I would go skydiving and I had never been skydiving. I thought that would be fantastic. So sure, I would go. And uh, and then she was mad at me for going with this girl. Uh-huh. And when I went skydiving, I landed hard and I injured my back badly. Oh. I mean, I didn't break anything, but I really hit hard. And I so I had a lot of back pain. I went to a, a doctor in Beverly Hills. I couldn't sleep for a long time. I was in a lot of pain. I tried to hide this from her. So I went to a a specialist in Beverly Hills and said, I cannot sleep. I cannot move. I'm in tremendous pain and I need to do something. So he gave me two pills and said, take these. You'll be fine. I said, okay. I said, can I take them here before I go? I got to go pick up my sister. He said, yeah, sure. And he handed me a little paper cup and some water. He said, go ahead. Last thing I remember. I mean, it, it was, it turned out that what he gave me was a combination that should have killed me. It was considered a fatal combination of pills. And wow. And so, yeah, it was considered a medical miracle. I lived taking these pills continuously until I ran out, and uh, but it wiped my memory out. It changed my behavior, something fierce. How I remembered to take the pills, I have no idea because I remembered nothing else. And as a result, people started to shun me. They're like, you're totally weird. You're wacky. We don't know what's going on with you because my behavior changed my mind. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't even know what was happening. I didn't hurt anybody, but my girlfriend broke up with me at the time. Because her mom said, he must be on something. He's got to be a drug mm-hmm. addict or alcoholic. Get away from him. Um, yeah. and, and I don't blame her for doing that. You know, I mean, I would probably advise my daughter the same way if somebody was doing what I was doing. But I wasn't I wasn't mean or vicious. I was just really confused. And, and um, so people started giving drugs. They go, here, have some Valium. You need to calm down. Here, have a Darvon. You need, here, here, have some, some cocaine. Here, have some, you know, whatever, just to try and to straighten me back out. And um, ultimately, my sister called my parents who were traveling and said, you need to get back here. There's something really, really wrong with Rex. And um, 
So when they came back, they found me nearly comatose in my apartment, wine bottles everywhere. I had kept journals. I had a stack of journals that I was writing, all scribbles, just nothing. You couldn't read anything, just page after page after page of illegible scribbles that apparently I was trying to express myself. And um, so they, they, they cleared out all the bottles, all the pill bottles, everything, and took the distributor cap off my car, which we had in those days. And they locked yeah. it in the apartment while they were trying to decide whether they should institutionalize me and where. And uh, it was during the summer I went completely cold turkey and was going through withdrawal. And I'm locked in my apartment and I'm like, I hate this. And they would come in and I go, I, you know, I mean, I felt so bad. I didn't know what had happened to me. I, I didn't, I didn't understand one about the drugs. I didn't know what had happened. I didn't really understand why the girl would have nothing to do with me. And I really wanted to get her back and I couldn't leave the apartment. And, you know, and they kept saying, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to get you some help. And I'm like, whatever. And at some point I went, fuck it. You know, and my mom was in the room and I pushed her out the door and I turned around and I had big bay windows and I just went, and I ran out the window and I just ran at top speed and went out. I went down two stories and I landed, I went through a tree with a cat sitting on the top and I could see this cat had been coming down. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to kill the cat. And I went down and I hit literally on my head, no hands, nothing. It was grass next to a tree. And I fell over and I went, shit, I can't even kill myself. I was, I was, I couldn't believe that I, that I didn't die in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened was I went straight down a spike. There was a big metal pole that came up next to this tree and it went down right this, it, it didn't scratch my head, but it went right, I, I literally went right through my back, you know, a couple yeah. an inch this way and I'd been right through my head. Oh my God. But I went right down and fell over and I'm like, shit, I can't, you know, and I got up and I ran around and I ran back upstairs and I had locked myself out of the apartment. I'm trying to break down the door and my mom and my sister and other family who saw me were like, how did, what happened to him? So they grabbed me and I'm like, get away from me while I'm trying to break this door down so I can jump out the window again. I, was, I would do it until I finished. I don't know how it ended. I mean, I don't remember what transpired uh-huh. after that. I just remember that incident. The cat survived. But I mean, all I could, all I was yelling was, I killed Wendy's cat. I killed Wendy's cat, thinking that I had crushed it as I went through the tree. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know what happened. So the the end decision was not to institutionalize me, which may or may not have been a good thing. I think today it was a great thing that they didn't do it. But what I did was I drove my parents cross country, smoking pot the entire time to try and calm down and through the Rockies and everything, terrorizing them and, and everything. And I drew, drove them because I, I just wanted to get away. And they were like, can you stop smoking that stuff? And I'm like, if I don't smoke it, I don't drive. I'm not going to be with you. I'll run off. You will never see me again. So they were just, wow. they were very brave. I got to admit, they were truly great. With my like 90-year-old grandmother, however she old she was in the car, you know, I'm just, I, I, I haven't said all of that in the book, but some of this I've said in the book. Yeah. But anyway, I, I did go cross country and then I spent a couple weeks, uh, you know, just kind of convalescing and then returned to Los Angeles where I pre- proceeded to drink and, and not do drugs, but I proceeded to drink all over again to try and forget all. I felt so bad, so guilty. The girl wouldn't have anything to do with me. None of my friends would have anything to do with me. I had destroyed my motion picture career pretty much. And I just 
So I started pouring alcohol into me and, and mm. massive amounts of alcohol. I would I would fill up a grapefruit container and drink it on the way to to the clubs so that by the time I got to the club, I was already drunk. And I, there would be times when I was driving down Hyperion Avenue in Los Angeles. I'm driving down the street, dr- chugging vodka out of a out of a orange juice container and a mm-hmm. cop yelling at me to turn on my headlights at like eight or nine o'clock at night. And I'm oh like, my God. turn on your headlights. I'm like, oh, OK. And I mean, I'm completely trashed. So um, and I never got caught and I never hurt anybody. But um, I did pass out in a lot of places. I did almost drag my car off of a cliff. I was uh, threatened by a mafia guy who said, I'm going to kill you for what you did last night. And uh, a friend of mine said, you know, you know, first it was the pills and you screwing up your life. And now it's this you're going to die. And yeah. that moment, and it was in Carlos and Charlie's, it was a hot spot on Sunset Strip. My yeah. friend waiter downstairs. And I and I thought, I don't I really I don't want to die. I mean, it was, it was it became really clear to me that everything I was doing was killing me. But I really didn't want to die. That wasn't what I was born to do. I wanted to live, but I wanted to feel whole and I wanted to feel complete. I wanted the pain to end. I, I didn't want to be a, a joke or, you know, an excuse or, you know, whatever. And so it was at that moment that I thought I really got to get help. And again, I went to cold turkey on the alcohol. I, I, I'm going to stop so you can talk to me, but I went to a therapist and all they wanted to do was put me back on meds. And I go, you don't get this. <laughs> you just don't get this. Pills are what got me here. And they were prescribed by a doctor. They were med- They were legitimate medicine. I didn't, I didn't go out of my way to be a drug addict. I, but, but, and you want to put this, well, but this is different. And I go, but it's not different. And everywhere I looked, I'd see save on drugs and big drugs and Walgreens drugs and, you know, and it just, I became like, oh my God, this whole world is medicated. I'm not going to go there. And I, and I, and I did, I stopped everything cold turkey. I stopped the drinking cold turkey and I said, I just have to get it together. And I, I talk about it in my book and I'll tell you more about it in a second, but, but I want to give you a chance if you have any comments or questions, but it, it was a long time. It was about, a, about an 18 month journey and I don't remember most of it you know, little bits and pieces of it here and there. And, um, but it's an interesting thing because the one thing in my life, I was doing a show for NBC with a guy who said he had amnesia for about 18 months of his life, but he didn't know who he was. You know, he, he lost memory for who he was. And I was like, that was fascinating. I don't know what that would be like. And I had, I had drug induced amnesia for this, you know, an alcohol induced. And then I was in a car accident where I had retrograde amnesia where I couldn't remember like 48 hours but I've never lost my identity in, in all of this. I always, or who I think I am. So, but it was interesting that the one experience I always thought that must be amazing. I got to have, <laughs> and, uh, and to know that, that, you know, but well, I guess it, before I stop, I just, it just, all of this taught me that no matter what I went through or what I, I thought it, it really was, a, it was all a product of my own making. You know, I couldn't blame God or the universe or others or anything, you know, and I could try. I could say, well, she broke up with me. That's why I did this. But that's not really that it really isn't true. You know, I I and you know, and I, I could even say, well, the doctor, you know, gave me these pills and this. But you know what? I look at it like the entire thing happened for me and I would not have the life I have today. And by the way, a, an actor friend who's from Canada, Nick Mancuso, and I were sitting in in Toronto a number of years ago at a cafe 
He said, how did you ever end up in the Midwest? And I went through some of this story and he goes, my God, this, your entire life was ordained by God. You wouldn't have the children if you didn't go through it. I said, no, I'm very much aware of that. So. Absolutely. And, and what strikes me right off the bat was, you know, for someone at six to be starting to look in that kind of depth, books that some of us took decades to get around to. For me, that was like you were preparing to be lost so that you could get through it. You know, I don't disagree with that at all. In fact, there's the Hindu version of Leela, the divine play in which God forgets that he, she, and all the many different gods are gods. And they go in and become human with the idea that through, in some cases, you know, reincarnation or whatever, but through, through the life experiences, they will wake up to the fact that they are gods masquerading as humans. And, and I have felt since I was young that there was a calling that I was always trying to avoid. I don't want to make it sound, you know, more than it is, but I'm just saying, you know, that I do what you just said, feel like I have in some way, I was prepared, preparing for this and subsequent to it, um, this just discovered so many things about um, myself, my mind. In fact, why I wrote the book was because I, I, when I was going through my, my process of recovery, I locked myself in my apartment. Mm. I said, I can't face the world. This is no good. I got to, you know, because everybody's wanting to medicate me and do all these things. So I locked myself in my apartment for a minimum of six weeks. And I said, I'm not going to leave my easy chair until I can face the world, you know, confidently. And I sat down in the chair because I knew I knew hypnosis and I knew I knew meditation. I knew I had read all these things in the past. So I sat down in the chair and I would visualize and I got up to go to the bathroom and I got up to go buy some food occasionally, but I lived inside this apartment otherwise. And I would sit there with my eyes closed and I would try and imagine myself feeling better and being better and looking better and all the kinds of things that we hear about that we're supposed to do. And I just almost made me feel worse because I'm going, this is what I want. And it's like, but that's not where you are and look at what you've done. And I'd go, how long is this going to take? And why did this happen to me? And how could I be so stupid? And, you know, and I just kept, I kept getting feeling worse and worse and worse. Mm. And then it dawned on me. And, and suddenly, you know, I had this huge breakthrough. I was like, I'm asking all the wrong questions. Mm. I'm saying, why did it happen to me? And why am I stupid? And how, you know, and I thought, I don't really want to know why it happened. I want to know how I get over it. I don't really want to know how stupid I am. I want to know how, how, how smart I could be to, to discover you know, and I don't want to know how long it's going to take. I want to know how quick it's going to be. I don't want to know, you know, so I, I started to shift my, my, the questions I was at, instead of saying, how long is this going to take? I say, how soon am I going to be before I can get out and meet my friends confidently? How quickly can I start to travel in the world? And, and, and at the, sometimes I would say not feel like a jerk or not feel so stupid. And then I'd realize, well, if I, that's not how I want to say it. I don't want to, all I'm thinking about is being a jerk or feeling stupid. I go, how how soon can I get up and get into the world and feel worthwhile and and love myself? And how much? What do I need to do in order to transform myself into the kind of person who lives successfully? So I started asking myself questions, and then I created. Ultimately, a, a year or two later, I created what's called directed questions, and I've been teaching it ever since, because questions direct the mind. And usually, when 
people feel bad. They're going, why is this happening? And what about this? And woe is me. And how come everybody's doing well, but I'm not. And you, you have two choices, just like this tide goes in and out. You can either be negative or you can be positive. And so you need to ask yourself positive questions. And that's what I didn't do at first. And that's what I hadn't done all of my life. I was always asking the wrong questions. And so the results I would get and the feelings I would get would be a result of asking that question. I mean, if you ask your brain, why are you so stupid? Your brain will go, well, here's why. And it'll give you every example and every reason for why you're stupid. Because that's how the brain works. It works on associations and memories and experiences that you've had and anchors and triggers and all that kind of stuff. If you ask yourself, how come I'm so brilliant or how, some, how come I'm so wonderful or how come I'm so loving? Uh, it will find those experiences too. But for most people right now, if they aren't used to doing this, one will be easier than the other. Mm -hmm. and the one that's easier is the one they do most often. So they need, they need to just train themselves to do the other one. And then it becomes as reliable as the old one that they've replaced. You were going to say uh, that's that's absolutely brilliant and i'm going to add to that because uh, i can't even remember where i was at some seminar and one of the women speaking said you know people tell you to say positive things and don't say negative things don't call yourself stupid and because yes the brain does listen the, the soul does listen you said but i knew that i couldn't believe me in telling me I was smart and I was what have you. She said, but what I did understand was I could tell me that I was the kind of person who was smart, the kind of person who did what I needed to do. And it was such a, oh, wow, that's brilliant. Because rather than this huge chasm that you have to jump over from the extremely negative to the extremely positive, it's increments. You can be the type of person to get a little better every time. Exactly. I just thought it was so lovely. And, and you're adding to that. No, 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 go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I agree. No, 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 no that, that's what I'm saying. You, you, your, your concept there is exactly uh, what that needs because we have to get to that purely positive place to be able to go forward. Well, back in the 80s when I was teaching this and then and then subsequently I wrote an article why affirmations don't work or why visualization doesn't work was was this very principle is that you look in the mirror and you say I'm my ideal weight and your mirror goes no you're not you know you you go I am so brilliant yes. and the and the brain goes no you know when you were 4 you stuck your head in a toaster you're really stupid. Um, so it it has all this this stuff so rather than creating a conflict I started with questions like I wonder how soon before I can feel better. And delightful and there's much more to it than simply that you know some other people have, have piggybacked on this work i mean i didn't invent questions they've been around since the dawn of humankind but i did i did very much work on how you direct your mind using questions because the great hypnotherapist milton erickson would say to his clients like i and i'm wondering which of your hands is going to rise up you know and that's a question to someone else and i would say well what if i were wondering which of my hands would rise up you know, why don't I why don't I ask myself those kinds of questions instead of relying on somebody else to ask them to of me? So I'm wondering how soon I can feel marvelous as opposed to why does everything in my life suck? But what you said is so true. And I've and I and I and I add to that in the sense that you may need to baby step your way into it. So even if you ask a question or if you say, I am I am confident, you could say, I am the kind of person who could learn to be confident. I am in the process of learning to become confident. Or even though I'm not completely confident at this time, I'm discovering the many different ways 
in which I can begin to assert myself. So there's there's all sorts of ways to 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 step yourself into it. You don't have to make that leap over some kind of giant chasm of, you know, from not to this, um, or from you know feeling horrible to bliss. But you inch your way along, and and in fact, enough baby steps in the right direction can take you up to the top of Mount Everest, as the saying goes. So you want you do want to baby step yourself and you want to respect yourself along the way. So I always tell people wherever they at, just pat themselves on the back because you do what you do at the time that you did it with the resources that you were aware of or had available at your time. And you can't blame yourself for not being aware of something or not knowing. It's like, you know, if you slept through a movie and somebody said, did you see that movie last night? And they go, no, I slept through it. You know, why would you blame yourself? You were asleep. You know, yeah. you didn't know it. it. It it went on without you, so you can't you can't blame yourself for that. You just go, I was asleep. Next time, I'll set the alarm. And in this case, what we do is we prepare, because it really is a matter of managing your thinking. You see, if you manage your thinking, you then manage your feeling. But I'm going to say one thing about that: a lot of people wait to feel like it's right so they go i don't feel like doing that today i don't feel like going into work or i don't feel happy or i'm i feel sad and so therefore i can't get up and go out you know muhammad ali said i never felt like training and muhammad ali became you know one of the world's best champion boxers. Mm -hmm. i never felt like training i didn't want to go out and run behind some car when it was cold and wet you know I, that's the last thing i wanted to do but i knew that if i wanted to be a champion i had to sacrifice the now for the the big reward I knew that I had to go out and do it. And in fact, when I would go out and do it and I'm running in the cold and wet, I didn't feel like I wanted to run in the cold and the wet. I came back in knowing that I had accomplished something. You can't wait for motivation to take you. You have to do something. It, it, the, the ancients knew this all along. They would say, if you're angry, count to 10. If you're sad, go work in the garden or help somebody who's worse off than you because they knew that by activating your body and by activating your breathing and changing the what you're doing physically as well as mentally and, and and your emotions change. And what happens for a lot of people is they get upset. Do you here's a really interesting thing. We we are such creatures of habit that the estimates are that between probably ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of everything we do is already done for us it's our brain doing it over and over again yeah. we're, we're automatons you know in in that and we have a conscious mind that allows us to make decisions and which is responsible actually for training this massive unconscious but that 98 percent uh is what we do every day they say has over sixty-five thousand thoughts that we routinely think and we keep doing the same things over and over again we only out of there's 4,000 words in English that connotate emotions and many of them or most of them are negative emotions. So it tells you a little bit about our bias. But out of 4,000 emotions, we routinely have between six and 12 at the most. Out of all the different ways you could put your body, you know, sit and cross your legs. I mean, we have a handful of those which are comfortable. They come, become habits. So you get mad about different things, but precisely the same way. Physiologically, neurologically, the, the chemicals and the electrical impulses and what, how it moves through your body when they track it, there's, a, it, there's a, a system. So somebody may get mad. They say, you know, the breathing started to change. Then I started to see red and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And then I felt tension growing in my shoulders. This happens whenever they get mad or whenever they're going to get raged or frustrated or whatever. They get confused the same way. They get 
loving the same way. They get happy the same way. Different things trigger it, but the process is pretty much the same for a handful of emotions out of all the emotions that you can have, which tells us that the brain is reliable and it replicates what it knows over and over and over again. And as a result, it also limits what we are able to do because it, it preserves what it knows until it's retrained to do something else. So if you always do what you always have done, you will always get what you always got. And the saying that, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. But that's how we live our lives. And so we still we keep thinking the same thoughts over and over again around money, around family, around relationships, around others, around the world, around the universe. We keep thinking those 65,000 thoughts are patterns of thought that we have maintained for most of our life that we've that we have come to 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 um, adopt during during the zero to seven or eight years old, where we're most likely a sponge for the values and the fears and the emotions and the beliefs of those around us. And we adopt those. And then the rest of our life, we work out um, proving it to ourselves. We go, we say, oh, see, I, I, I told you I couldn't do that or that I'm not that kind of person. Um, and you will always not be that kind of person until you decide to be that kind of person and change. It's so, so true. On that, when you were a child and you felt this loneliness, have you taken that and turned it around? Do I feel lonely today? Yeah. No. No. Okay. No, and, and and here's the thing. What when I got out of that room, I I was a baby. I mean, I was a neophyte. I kind of like the, the equivalent of crawling out of the room. I went out to face the world and I could do it. And then the world would do whatever it did and I would respond. And sometimes I would want to run back into my room and other times I would go, hey, I can handle this. And what I learned through all of it is, is, is what we were talking about earlier, that in order for a sailboat to get anywhere, the wind has to blow and it has to fill the sails. And, you know, uh, so the challenges were there to make me stronger. And I didn't at first appreciate that, but I then began to see it and realize that Okay, so I, I spent a lot of time in ashrams as well, subsequent to, to, to trying to kill myself. Um, and some of the worst advice I've ever had have been in an ashram. And everybody thinks, oh, this is, you go there to be peaceful and everything else. But an ashram is really kind of a microcosm of the world. It's, a, it's like putting everything on a, on a plate and like, like people working it out in a, small, in a small context of the real world. So, you know, we'd have ego and I, I, I use that term loosely, but ego arguments between people. I got into a, into a, a I got into an argument with a guy in an ashram in, on the East Coast where Satsang was there. The guru's down in the meditation hall and they're waiting and, and we're in the kitchen. And when you, when you went to the ashram, you had the choice of choosing a spiritual name. And so I, I asked for a spiritual name that gave me a particular name. And uh, and it was it meant the last inculcation of of Kulki or the destroyer before the world ended. And um, so I'm in the kitchen and I'm supposed to sweep the floor and then go to the meditation hall. And there's a guy chopping vegetables. And I said, could you just move so I could sweep? And he said, could you just wait so I could chop? So I stood there for a minute. And I said, OK, OK, can you move? And he said, could you wait? And I said, well, but if you move, I could just sweep where you were. And he said, well, if you just wait, I could get the chopping done. 
And we erupted into this huge argument. And after, I don't know, maybe five minutes, we heard pounding of footsteps and people came running in and they said, never in the history of the ashram could you hear an argument way out, you know, 100 yards away in the meditation. Oh, you guys, what are you doing? And we, we realized that we had been on this and we introduced ourselves and we both out of out of the three or four hundred people there was the only two people with the exact same name. So it was like arguing with ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the weirdest coincidence, right? I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. He said, I am so, and I was like, oh my. <laughs> I was like, you know, just being kicked by a mule. It was, it was truly, um, so what I learned was that um, in order to move forward in life, I had to learn how to manage my thoughts. I had to learn how to disengage from triggers that I had lived with uh, previously. And that I could do that, that I could, uh, that I could do that. that and, and that's what I've been teaching now for 40 years is that you can, if you learn how to manage your mindset and develop a champion mindset, that unhooks you from everything else, but it also allows you to feel the kind of feelings that you want to feel and enjoy and diminish the ones that you don't want to feel. And then when you feel the feelings that you want to feel in your mindset are working together in harmony, that means there's an alignment in your body, you, you know, there's between head and heart. Then you also behave and take right actions as opposed to acting haphazardly or from your previous conditioning. And so the results you get are significantly different. And I also tell people, and I teach this too, that you know, to speak only to bless, heal, inspire, motivate, prosper, transform, and uplift yourself and other people. Because when you do that, if you put a guard between before your tongue, if you put a guard before your thoughts, and your feelings start to live qualitatively different. So I, I've transformed my entire life, it, you know, and it's, it's happened through process. It's happened at times in large chunks. You know, Scrooge had been a miser all his life, but the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future visited him one night in a dream. So the story goes, and he woke up the next morning a completely different person. And that is possible. And that's what mm -hmm. all is possible for all of us, whether it happens over a period of years or whether it happens in an instant. Sadly, most people want it to be in an instant, and most often it happens over years. <laughs> but, but it is it's, it's learning. It's learning. It's a process. Oh, absolutely, such oh my god, such wonderful nuggets in this interview. I I am feeling truly blessed mm -hmm. to get to do this with you. And you've mentioned your book a few times, and we've talked about certain things. I want to uh, give people the opportunity to uh, go to your website. And that's the first URL that you see is Rex's website. Rex, I would like you to talk about the second URL. Well, I'm giving away as a bonus for everyone who gets the book from Amazon. And if you go to the second URL, rexsykes.com forward slash Life on Your Terms, or L-O-Y-T, is, is, is the thing. Um, I'm giving away a, a, a $497 training in mastery, which will help you um, learn what you're learning in the book and or anything that you want to learn or anything that we've talked about. Uh, I, I wanted to do it because I wrote Life on Your Terms because I had discovered that you can transform your life. And I felt, you know, how could I keep that a secret? You know, I, I've... I've I, I have undergone a transformation and I continue to do so. Um, so it would be, it would be remiss of me not to share it. And so um, from the late seventies, you know, I've been teaching workshops in meditation and hypnosis and in what I call mind design and neuro-linguistic programming. And um, 
finally, you know, I mean, people kept saying you should write a book and I had lots of different books, but I'm so proud of this book. It's called Life on Your Terms, Create the Life You Want. And um, uh, I have what's called the mastery loop, which is how we go from um, the beginning stage of anything to mastery. So it's, it's building a foundation for if you wanted to learn how to juggle, you'd be a better juggler. If you want to learn how to manage your mindset, and uh, manage your emotions to get better results that you can do that so when you go and you get the book you just put your receipt number it, it all tells you how to do it at that website but you put in your receipt number and you get access to the training and um and people are loving it so they love the book they love the training i'm very pleased and it's changing lives that's most important and and i, I i'm going to take that back a book doesn't change lives you know i can throw the book on the table and it's going to sit there it's not going to do anything um, I came to that conclusion as an actor in Hollywood when people would say, what's more important, the actor or the script? This debate has raged on before and since. Mm. I would throw the script on the floor and I would go act. And it does nothing. So it takes the human to bring it alive. So using the book, you can transform your life when you apply things. You can make an incredible difference. Um, but the book, I mean, a lot of people read a book and, and, and don't do anything with what's in it. So that's why not only do I want you to read the book, I gave you training so you knew how to apply things. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I think the bottom line there, the, the thread that runs through everything is it's up to you to choose. It, it truly is. And we, and we were talking before the show. And one of the things that, that we were talking about is, is the, the choice, you know, and particularly when it comes to making a decision you can't take back. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of friends who have, who have taken their lives. I had a good woman friend of mine who did it a couple of years ago. And, and, and almost every day since then, I go, you know what? This is a good day. You would have liked this day. Yeah. You know, I wish you were here to enjoy it. I miss you. And and um, and so, you know, people we, we were talking about procrastination and how people procrastinate and do, don't do things in life. But if you're ever going to procrastinate, it is procrastinating that decision to take your life. Put that off for another day and then put it off for another day and keep procrastinating. Because what you ultimately will find is that life does get better. Things really do pass. It may seem like they don't, but they really they really do. And no matter how dark it is, you know there is there are other options available and so exercises i have two amazing children that i would never have i'm sitting out on my deck right now with three amazing girl dogs and uh, i love them with all my heart and soul like i do my children only i love my children probably more but i mean you know i'm being facetious right but the point is is that i am so blessed in so many ways and i would not have been i would have died in my mid-20s i wouldn't know all the glory and all the stuff that's happened 40 years later, you know, and I'm, I, I am, I am blessed for each and every moment of it, all the hardship, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backward. You can, you can't connect looking forward. And that's why Nick Mancuso said, look, you know, if you go back, you can trace your kids all the way back to that moment when you, you know, you, you, you know, you did this. And I was like, you yeah, know, absolutely. If, if that woman hadn't broke up with me and I hadn't gone through all of this, you know, and, and, and if, you know, if anything had been different, I wouldn't have the children that I have now. And so I'm, I truly feel blessed and every day is a blessing. And so my tagline on my blog and everything I do is celebrate everything because, because when you consider everything a blessing, everything becomes a blessing. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, you either win or you learn. And I go, no, if you learn, you've won. 
you know, why would you ever say it's either one or the other? You, you're winning every t when you learn, and you're winning when you win. So it's it's all good. So all of it is so good. I I am I am just sitting here deeply filled with gratitude for everything you've offered, and I am so thankful that I got to meet you in Clubhouse so that we could get to do this. I know for the audience, this will be an amazing podcast. And I just want to say thank you ever so much, Rex, for spending time with us today, dropping so many pearls of wisdom. There are nuggets in there that I'm going to be going over and over and over because they're fabulous. Well, I, I appreciate you. And I think the work that you're doing and that you're making this podcast available to people to assist people who at an hour of need need to hear this podcast, both before, during and after at any given moment and, and to help provide people. You know, a friend of mine um, was a criminal and, and went to prison has come back out and said, if I can keep one person from going to jail and going down a life of crime, you know, I've, my life has been successful. And, you know, to that extent, if we can keep one person alive and help them live a life that they would not otherwise live as a result of hearing your work and, and, and or the words of the guests that you have, that is truly a, a worthwhile mission and, and one that, uh, you know, there's rewards for you all over the universe, I'm sure. Thank you once again. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide, Zen, and Forgiveness. And as per usual, make the very best of your today, every day. And I'll see you next time. Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.